Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, from Psalm 49, in fact, verses 5 through 15. Let us listen for a word of God to us, the church, today. Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of my persecutors surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly, no ransom avails for one's life. There is no price one can give to God for it. For the ransom of life is costly and can never suffice, that one should live on forever and never see the grave. When we look at the wise, they die. Fool and dolt perish together and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they named lands their own. Mortals cannot abide in their pomp. They are like animals that perish. Such is the fate of the foolhardy, the end of those who are pleased with their lot. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, straight to the grave they descend, and their form shall waste away. Sheol shall be their home. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for God will receive me. The word of the Lord. second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of first timothy the second chapter verses one to seven let's listen again for a word from god first of all then i urge that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgiving should be made for everyone for kings and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity this is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Jesus Christ, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So our scripture reading today, our second one, uh, finds us in 1 Timothy, which is a book deeply concerned with order, with discipline, with the structure of church life, as a rich history and we could do an entire adult ed series about it, I'm sure, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're just going to deal with the text in front of us. And what we see, what I think we see, one of the things playing out is an interplay of power and prayer. So I'm going to read this text one more time. And as I do, I'm going to invite you to listen specifically for themes of power and themes of prayer. First of all, then, 
I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What did you hear? Did you hear God's power? Civic power? Jesus' power? Maybe a writer's bid for apostolic authority? What about prayer? Did you hear different kinds of prayer? Maybe a claim about its power? Even just the first two verses have a lot going on. It's not particularly uncommon to see 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 coupled with Romans 13.1 as an argument for people to defer to people in positions of authority. So prayer in this case might be thought of as sort of a sign of respect for those in power. Uh, But I think one of the dangers of that reading is that it really sets prayer up as a transactional practice. Why do we pray for people in authority? Because we want to live quiet, peaceable lives, and maybe they will do it right, and we'll get exactly that. Just don't rock the boat. Pray for them. It's certainly a reading of the text. It's not an uncommon one. But there are a couple of problems with it. In the broadest sense, it kind of suggests a rubber stamping wholesale of whatever political power is in power at the time, regardless of time or place in history. Doesn't matter who it is or what they're doing. As Christians, your job is to pray for them and hope for peace. It makes prayer passive and transactional. It's very much if-then. But more specifically, it ignores the context in which this letter is being written, and therefore how subversive those first two verses really are. Because for the people living in the time when this letter is written, living, we think, in Ephesus, the culture around them thinks that the emperor is a god, not an authority placed by God. The emperor is literally worshipped. Part of daily civic life is praying to the emperor, offering sacrifices, offering oaths of allegiance. So when Paul says, pray for everyone, pray for kings and all in high positions, the word for is doing really subversive work. Because what he's not saying is pray to them. And in fact, he's sort of going a step further by nesting the kings, nesting that authority within the totality of humanity. So that when we begin in prayer... The priority is not first and foremost for the people in charge so that our lives are okay. First and foremost, it's for people, all people, of whom those those in authority are 
because they too are people and like people are not God. It means prayer in the scripture is a practice wherein commonly understood attitudes towards systems of power and the very meaning of that power itself are subject to reevaluation and reorientation. The poet Padraig Otoma talks about prayer as a practice of imagination in which we can see things differently. There's a second piece of context that I think is important when we talk about these verses and the function of prayer in them, and that's that the church that Paul is writing to is a social and cultural minority. They are new. We're in the second century. This isn't the dominant force. They don't live in a Christian nation. They live in a Greco-Roman state. They are becoming a community, and it's not necessarily safe to be a Christian because you are a threat to the understood social order of the day, an order that, among other things, prays to the emperor, which means that while prayer internal to the community is an act of perspective shifting and reorientation, externally it's also code switching. It's a tool for survival for this people. It doesn't treat the church like some kind of separate or shield, somehow separate or shielded from the realities of how power works in the world. First Timothy is very clear about how power works in the world, but there is, the text tells us, a very real way right now that if you want to get what you want is a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and dignity, we're going to have to figure out a way to keep our heads down, especially if the powers that are concerned about you are concerned that you are a threat to dominant civic life. So by praying for the emperor, you give the appearance of being within the accepted social norm such that you are not the real way. So prayer reorients, prayer is a tool for survival, but nowhere, you will note, does it say that prayer is wish fulfillment. Despite offering prayers for all people, for the emperor, we are not going to magically pray ourselves into an egalitarian utopia. And even if we were praying for the emperor, forces us to acknowledge that they are unlikely to be the ones who are going to make it happen. They are, after all, human as well. And even if praying for the emperor and code switching allows us to be safer, that is not the same thing as being free. It is actually not the same thing as living in a world in which everyone can live a peaceable life in godliness and dignity because that world is the kingdom of God. First Timothy asks us to grapple with the reality of power in the world and challenges us to think about how we relate to it and suggests that the primary way we do this is through prayer. We must begin in prayer. Fine. But what is that? How do we pray? That's a whole sermon series. That's an education. That's an entire season. 
of our community together that we could spend talking about how we pray. Centuries of Christian thought about what is prayer, what is it doing, what does it mean. But to offer one set of answers to what it could be, perhaps it's useful to think about prayer in this way. The writer Patricia Hampel is said to have asked once while walking on a pilgrimage to Assisi in Italy, what is prayer? She began to make a list. She wrote down a few words, praise, gratitude, begging, pleading, cutting deals, fruitless whining and puling, focus. And then the list broke off, for she discovered that prayer only seems like an act of language. Fundamentally, it is a position, a placement of oneself. Prayer as focus is not a way of limiting what can be seen. It is a habit of attention brought to bear on all that is. I'm going to say that again. Prayer only seems like an act of language. Fundamentally, it is a position, a placement of oneself, focus. So an invitation to prayer is an invitation to notice, to pay attention, to focus. And in the framework of what's happening in First Timothy, that invitation means noticing the things we are focused on and the things that demand our attention in ways that wield power over us. The question for us is not so much, how do I pray, as who or what am I praying to? Every other lectionary text this week is grappling with questions of what people ultimately value most and how it manifests in their lives. I know we didn't read those all today, but I would actually encourage you to look them up and spend some time thinking about them. Uh, I have been preaching out of the Reformed Common Lectionary. We are in year C, proper 20, um, which, if you're interested, is on page 976 of your hymnals where if we are following the lectionary, the weekly, all the weekly options will be. Um, that's for later, and like I said, we're not going to work through every text that's on the table for this week. But when I read through these scriptures as a group, one of the through lines that bubbled up was an uncomfortable reality of grappling with this question of value, of power, of control, and of what is a priority and how it defines people's lives. The Luke text tells us we cannot serve God in money. The Amos text rages against performative religious acts that have no impact on people's day-to-day -day behaviors. Psalm 79 is very telling from a human perspective. The psalmist is literally appealing to God's own sense of God's reputation as a way of mediating the consequences they are experiencing. And in the midst of it, Jeremiah's God is weeping for a people whose focus is everywhere else 
Maybe with their mouths they pray, but the words are hollow. There's no focus in them, no intention. They barter, they scheme, they undercut, they lie. They seek to consolidate power and position and ingratiate themselves to those who would make their lives easier. And if that is their focus, and because that's their focus, their priority, their words mean nothing to me to prayer. If prayer is a posture, a focus, then the way that they move through the world tells us what they value, tells us what we value. It reveals who or what we pray to. And if we believe God is still speaking in the scriptures, still challenging us, still meeting us there, then uncomfortably themes like this are not confined to the then, but matter greatly for the now. Who or what are we praying to? What controls us? What dictates our values and our actions? What has been our primary focus? I am not going to speak for you, but I think if I am incredibly honest about myself, I can name that that's probably not always God. Pray to the market. Pray to the Supreme Court. Pray to the Electoral College. Pray to the College Admissions Board. Pray to the review process. Fix me. Save me. Promise me. Protect me. Two weeks ago, we were in Jeremiah, contemplating our lump of clayness, our instability and malleability. We talked about the fear that inspires those things, but we also talked about the promise inherent in them that this set of circumstances is not fixed, that now in this moment is not forever. Jeremiah's God is grieving because of the not because of the actions of people, but because of their unwillingness to round the corner and come back, to adjust their posture. Power is tempting. Power is all-consuming. Power pulls focus. And in light of that, First Timothy reminds us that power is still subject to God and reminds us that prayer to God for those things that seem to encompass us and draw us and tempt us away. Puts those other focuses at God's feet. Prayer can become an important tool for refocusing. And because First Timothy then goes on to speak about Jesus, we are reminded that the good news of the gospel is that there is always turning back. One might argue that there is only turning back. God is actually, the scriptures say, under no illusions that we pray to other things. But God is not going to leave us alone with the things that we pray to. In Christ, God steps into the situations in our lives that are so wholly all-encompassing that we cannot imagine another way, cannot shift our focus. In Christ, God steps between us and the thing we are so certain of, and shows us another way, reforms the thing in front of us, shifts our focus, and demonstrates lordship and control and power over it. 
and the place we experience that most fully is in prayer. Our book of order tells us that prayer is at the heart of worship. It is a gift from God who desires dialogue and relationship with us. It is a posture of faith and a way of living in the world. And theologian Willie James Jennings has expanded on this idea, offering that as Christians we are to encounter everything through prayer. It's the primary way we're meant to relate to God and to each other, which means that in prayer, everything can be brought to God, even the things we are certain control us or control our world. God has room for our doubt in prayer. God has room for our fear in prayer. God has room for our joy in prayer. God has room for every good thing and every struggle in prayer. There is no thing outside of God that God cannot take into God's self, reform, and reorient. Prayer is a practice of focus, a returning of our attention, our own returning of our attention, and perhaps God's returning of our attention to us, to that first relationship that shapes everything else, no matter the powers, the principalities, the struggles, the things that threaten to overwhelm us, whether we dance sing or run or sit quietly, prayer is the first step that we are invited into. May it be so. Amen.